We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Welcome this morning. We want to welcome you in. If you are out in the hall, please come and join us, especially the teacher this morning, who is going to bring us something from Bible history, I believe, and his studies in uh, the Minor Prophets. So, Looking forward to that. Welcome this morning. All right, let's turn our attention to the Word and to our brother who's bringing it this morning. Thank you, you, brother. (laughs) Good morning. I think you know which book we're turning to, if you've been here. That is the book of Haggai. It's a very small book. I can hold up one page here, and it has almost all the content on the back and the front side of that, plus a little bit on the next page. So as we have said, that this is one of the prophets that has been identified or called a minor prophet. But as we have also said, that what it has to say is not minor. And we need to pay attention to it. So I have put a heading at my top of my notes again, and I'll tell you what it is. And by telling you that, I kind of put some parameter to say, well, I have to at least get this far. And the title that I have is, They Obeyed God and Resumed the Temple Building Project. Now, last time I had at the head of my notes, why build a temple? And we tried to point out some of the things that were important with regard to that particular idea, that concept, to kind of show something of the, of the magnificence of the temple and what it really meant to get us to thinking that it's not just a building, no matter how ornate it may have been, no matter how much it may have been a world-class kind of a structure, that the importance and significance of it was not in its architecture or in its design. The importance and significance of it had to do with the God whom it was the center of worship for. That was the significance of the temple. And so we talked about that. In our first session, we said, and we put the title on, we said, God neglected a temple project neglected. And I, I think I said it before, I put it in that particular way because my thinking was that before they neglected to build what they were supposed to be doing, they neglected God. And then having neglected him, they neglected doing what he required of them. And so that's the way that went. Now, in the last session, we left off basically talking about compassion and a compassionate God, how God is a God of compassion. 
and we visited some scriptures in the New Testament talking about that, about the Lord Jesus having compassion for the people, being as sheep with no shepherd, compassion. Now, Haggai, this book, is written to people who were in a foreign land, had been in a foreign land. They had been there over decades, and now a remnant had come back uh, to their homeland in Judah. And God had orchestrated the whole thing. They're going down there, and they're coming back. And it was not, as I think I used the word before, it wasn't a happenstance sort of thing that happened. That God is God. And he is sovereign. And he is the ruler of the world. He is the ruler of the nations. And he is the ruler of us. And all are accountable to him. That's a hard concept, I think, for a lot of people to get an idea about. The idea that there is God, and he is real, and that he does hold every one of us and the nations accountable, and that he will have the last word. Those, to me, are big ideas. But when we look in the scripture, we need to grasp onto those ideas and consider those. So I'm going to go back now, not to read say everything I said last time, but I, I want to go back again to Second Chronicles. And I'll read a smaller section there in chapter 36. And that's where we lift the word compassion out of the text there because it showed that God had that compassion that we, speak, we were speaking about. In Second Chronicles chapter 36, and I think this time I'm just going to read these two verses, 15 and 16. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings by messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But, now, see, the but is there. It, it's, it's like, now, let's be careful now and notice what's coming. Because this is a response. There. But they mocked the messengers of God. Mocked those people. As if they were malcontents who were delivering their own messages, which the people didn't need and didn't want. So they mocked them. They despised his words. Said, we don't want to hear this. Get out of here. We don't want it. Take that somewhere else. They scoffed at his prophets. These are God's prophets. These are the people whom God has raised up to give to them what they need to know and what they need to heed. But they scoffed at them. Then, until, there's another captivating word, because you see the things that they did, they did it for a time. 
It says here, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, till or until there was no remedy. I think I said that's both about the saddest words you can hear. No remedy. No remedy. They can do all that kind of mockery and scoffing and rejecting of God's word. God has given people a measure of ability to choose. And they can choose either to accept what he has to say or to reject it. They can choose to seek out what God has to say and try to understand it and ask for his help to believe it and to heed it. Or they can take a different attitude and say, well, that's, that's good for you, but not for me. You might need that, and if that's fine. I'm happy about that. But I don't need it, so, you know, whoever truth. That's dangerous. And ultimately, see, we are marching through this life. There's a dear one, I remember her sitting here in this church who, whose life left, who, who left us this uh, yesterday morning, I think it was. I'm talking about Kelly. I remember seeing her sitting here, somewhere right about where Brother Ben is sitting now. But she's not sitting here with us now. But there is confidence because she was already to be with the Lord. She had already understood the things of God. She had understood what these things were about. And so it's for her a graduation to go to be with Christ, the Savior. But for people who don't know him, it's not that. Anyhow, let's move ahead here to see what we have. So God sent the people into captivity. And he did it for good reason. He did it as a compassionate God. He did it as a God who is long-suffering and patient and kind. He did it as a God who was rising up early and sending messengers to them. He did it as a God who cared for his people. And he did it, shall I say, because he loved them. You see, that's that scripture. God says, whom he loves, he chastens. Whom he loves. And so the chastening hand of God fell upon his people. And that's what all this was. So they were down there in Babylon in difficult circumstances, and they had gotten there because of their wrongdoing. But God was still a loving God and still compassionate, and he was still God. And they were still his, his people. Now we're talking about a nation, a covenant people in that sense. Not every individual 
or what that individual, those individuals were. Now, yesterday in the men's meeting, we focused our attention on chapter 29 in the book of Jeremiah. I want to go and visit a, piece, a portion that we, that we talked about yesterday. And the men who are here don't have to be concerned. I'm not going to repeat everything we had yesterday. But, uh, but we had a wonderful time there. I want you to notice a few things here in Jeremiah chapter 29. See, one of the things that we talked about is that in order for us you know, to, to talk about these people being recently released from captivity and they had a project to build a temple as they've been directed to do, but the first we had to get them into the captivity and then they had to get out of the captivity or and then they could get on with what they needed to do. But let me just read some verses here. Beginning in verse number one, and I think I'll read the first 10 verses here in chapter 29 of Jeremiah. Now these are the words of the, of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon, this happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, and the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, Elasa, and the son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, now this is what I want you to zero in on. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. So the first thing he's saying there is, understand that I sent you down there into this captivity. And I mentioned before how that on the ground, as we sometimes use that expression, it would look like the, the Babylonians, those bad people, they just came in and they just did all kinds of bad stuff to God's people. And they did. <laughs> but they were under the command of God to do this. And so God said, I am the one who caused this to be. So now he tells them, okay, so first understand, God says that I'm the one who caused you to be in this captivity, in this condition where you are. I'm the one who did that. We know that the Babylonians, you know, they were the instrument of God to bring about what God desired to do. But then he tells them how they are to live during their time there. And that's one of the things I find intriguing. And we, we're just reviewing some of these things. But these are the things that he told them that they needed to do. Basically, he said, just carry on life as life is normal, normal kind of living arrangements. And let me just read it from the text here so that we all know that I'm just not making something up here. In verse number four, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the people who carried away captive, whom I caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them, Plant gardens and eat their fruit. 
Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and for your daughters to husbands and give your daughters to husbands so that you may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished. Now, verse 7. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. Now, when you read about how the Babylonians dealt with the people of Judah, that the precursor of them marching, submitting them down into Babylon, that was a, that was a horrifying experience. That was a horrifying experience. And those people, they were living among now, and God had put them there. And God says, I want you to seek this peace of that city that wrecked Judah. How about that? Would you think that's a tall order? Would you think, would, would you be naturally inclined to do that? I think not. And in fact, we read right in the text, not in this particular one, that not everybody was in agreement with that approach, right? So there is a, an approach that was proper and from God's perspective, what they should do, and he told them. But not everybody agreed with that. But that's just like now. Not everybody agrees with God. <laughs> there are people who are convinced that they know better than God does, and they choose to do the thing that they know to be better in their thinking than what God declares to be the better thing. Now, that's quite amazing. We know that People who are deceived do that all the time. Somehow there has to be a getting beyond deceit in order to understand what they actually are doing. In verse 7 here it says, So seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. So not just seeking the peace. Seeking the peace might be just not causing any trouble, obeying the laws, and doing the normal stuff. But now he said, pray for them. <laughs> pray for them. Pray for them. Well, that, obviously that must be the best thing to do because otherwise God wouldn't have told them to do it, right? That's what they should do. That's, that's a good thing. But then he says this, for in its peace... You will have peace. So then you can understand a practical aspect to it as well. See, God is saying to them, what is happening to you is not because of the Babylonians. It's because of me, your God. And what I'm doing is carrying out a program that's going to bring glory to me and going to bring benefit and help to you. That's what God is talking about. He said, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm doing it. And you need to, if you understand that I'm doing it, then just follow and do what I tell you to do, and things will go well for you. Well, that's what Israel was told altogether. The covenant people of God, they were always told that. Just do what I tell you to do, and things will be well for you. But the people said, no, I have better ideas than that, so we don't need to be bothered about all that. Anyway, that's the way folks are. That's the natural inclination of the heart to be like that. So now, I'm going to read on now to the next couple of places here. Because one of the things that I pointed out yesterday is that 
God says, you know, do these things, this ordinary living pattern. But there's something else that's very important if they're going to be able to do this. Look at verse number 8. For thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams, uh, which uh, came to be dreamed, which uh, you caused to be dreamed. So essentially what the message there is, is that, okay, remnant, understand, God is saying, that I, God, has put you where you are. And I'm telling you how to live there. But not everybody is in agreement with me, God is saying. And there are prophets and designers and other people among you who have a different message Shall I say that they are preaching to you? And might I say, and they are persuasive. They are very persuasive. False prophets can be amazing in their persuasiveness. That's why the Lord says we have to really be discerning. And why the Lord says we need to stay close, keep our heads, as it were, as Pastor Sachs used to say, in the book. <laughs> you know, he, we need to keep our heads in the book. Because when we look into God's word and allow it to penetrate us, it increases our ability to be designing so that we don't follow the false prophets, those people who are saying things that God didn't tell them to say, they are saying, God told me to say this. And God says, I didn't. So who are you going to believe? The persuasive person who says, God told me something God didn't say? Or God's prophet who is telling what God said? Uh, how will you know the difference? And see, that's the thing. And so a lot of people that take the pr- approach that it really doesn't matter. Just pick one and believe whatever, whatever that person said and, and keep on going. That's why some people use that approach, but that's not a wise approach. Anyway, but what, and one of the other things that we mentioned uh, yesterday as well before I move, move ahead from here is that, so God said to them, you are there, you know, seek the peace of the city, pray for the city. You're here because I ordained for you to be here. But it tells them something else, too. He says, you're going to be here for a defined length of time, and I'm telling you what that is. Seventy years. We talked about that yesterday, so, and one of the fellows said, well, why 70? <laughs> so pastor you know, helped us to understand, to say, okay, well, the scripture actually tells us the answer to the question, right? And, but we had some fun with that yesterday. But here's what happened here is, so the 70 years was to give the land 70 years of rest that the people had neglected to give the land. And so the way that God's design was 
that they were supposed to plant. That's what he's holding. Plant for six years, and the six years throw up extra so that you can cover the seventh, the, the non-plant year. And so you don't need to plant. So he had a plan for them as to how they were supposed to conduct the agricultural affairs. And you know what happened? They said, well, we have a better plan. And we're going to do it our way. And God said, okay. You can do it your way for a while. I'll, I'll allow that. That's the way God said it. Their better idea got them 70 years in captivity. So if we think for 490 years, that's a long time. So the Bible tells us that God is long-suffering. I think that's long-suffering and patient and kind. What would happen if somewhere along the way, there's, let's say 100 years in, they say, oh, you know, we haven't been doing this thing the way we're supposed to. And they made a correction then and stayed on the right path. You think they would have been into that 70-year captivity? I, I, I venture to say no. They wouldn't be there. But they were. So what did God do? And we're not going to go into a lot of the verses because of the time factor. But God used the Persian, Persians. He stirred at the heart, it says, of Cyrus. We read in the last part of Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles 36 and first part of uh, Ezra, that, that God stirred the hearts of these Persian people. Now, I made note before, and I said Persian. Why are we saying Persian? I thought they went into Babylonian captivity. What's going on? Well, you know what happens in history. One nation is, rises up and they're they supreme for a time, and some other nation comes and they displace them, or they overrule, and they're now in, in charge. And that's what happened there in, in, uh, with Babylon. And so the Persians are now in control. And so then, basically, Judah now is... Uh, it's like a vassal state of the Persian Empire when they are sent back. But God stirred the men's, the heart of the Persian king, Cyrus, to make a decree that these people should go back. Now, that was challenged. That was a legal challenge about that. And so they had to go back and had to look in the records and find the record where, where, where actually Cyrus had made the decree. Now, this is in the time of Darius now, who's following uh, Cyrus, and not this Darius. <laughs> uh, uh, shall I say, this is a more noble Darius. <laughs> but anyway, so they were permitted, not just permitted, but God provided and orchestrated for them to be given what they needed to go and to, go, to begin to rebuild of the temple uh, there in, in Jerusalem. And that's what they were supposed to do. That, that was a requirement. And so now, let me get over to, to uh, Haggai and uh, read some here. Because I said we, we have to get to a certain place uh, here. And so I'm going to read through verse 12. Because otherwise, we, if I don't get to verse 12, we haven't fulfilled our mission. 
So I'm going to read through that portion, and then I'll make some other comments. And so it says here in the second year of Darius, and this is the first chapter, first verse of Haggai. In the sixth month and on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses and this temple lie in ruins? Note the contrast there. Their houses and their temple. Think about the relative importance of the two. I've tried to emphasize and bring a lot of focus on the importance of the temple in relation to worship in God and worshiping him properly. Consider that in terms of their houses and you see the priority that they chose. And this is what he says there. Now, so it says here, see, this people says, God knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. He knows what we're thinking about. He knows what's going on in our hearts and in our minds. And should we, no, no point trying to, to escape from him knowing what's going on with us. He knows. Now, therefore, in verse 5, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Think carefully about what you're doing. That's always a good word. In verse 6, you have sown much and you bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts. And now he says it again, see. He says to them there, he says, first, consider your ways. Then says, here are some consequences for your ways that you've chosen. And now he says, consider your ways. You see those bookends there? He said, consider your ways. I'm giving you some reasons here. Now, see, that they could focus there and understand that it has a personal effect, what they have done. So even if they were just thinking of a pragmatic idea of, of self, there's something there. Of course, the greater thing is God himself. And so in verse 8, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple. Go. Get the wood. Get the, what you need to build the temple. That. A purpose clause. He said that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. That's really the, the crux of the whole matter. I was thinking about the Shorter Catechism uh, of Westminster, Shorter Catechism, where it says, well, what is the chief in a man? And it's, it says to, to, uh, to worship God and, and, to, and to enjoy him forever. I think that's the way it's written in there, uh, to worship God and enjoy him forever. It's all about God. But he blesses his people. And he demonstrates in verse 9, you looked for much. Now it's going back to what was in the bookends, within the bookends. 
you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. You talk about misplaced priorities. That's what he's focusing on. Therefore, the heavens above withhold dew, the earth withhold fruit. For I call for a drought in the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth of men and livestock and of all the labor of your hands. God said, I did all that. Now, the next word is then. And so that's kind of, okay, let me pause and focus or refocus. Some of these words, what they do for me is when I'm reading, you know how you, you may not have the problem of losing your focus, <laughs> but I do. So I have to refocus, and then refocus, refocus, refocus. I remember at work I had a sign on my wall that I had made, and I had in big letters there. I said, focus, refocus, refocus, refocus. Some people struggle more with that than others. And so you have to try to figure out ways to keep yourself moving ahead. <laughs> but anyway, so in verse 12, number 12 here it says this. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the people, uh, with all the remnant of the people. Here's a key word, obeyed. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God has sent him. And all the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of the of and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. I was interested in that word stirred. God moved the hearts of these people. So that even when they got back to work doing what God said to do. There was no selfish personal boasting about that because they hadn't just pulled up their bootstraps and gotten on with it. That God had worked to stir the hearts just as he had done in the hearts of Darius, of Cyrus, those men, those Persians, to, to orchestrate these people coming back into the land. God stirring their hearts. While we sit in here today, or those who might be listening who are not sitting in this room, why are we doing this? The answer is because God stirred our hearts too. If he hadn't stirred our hearts, we would have no interest. So we pray for him to continue to stir our hearts and stir the hearts of other people. So, they came, 
They went to work, rebuilding the temple. They obeyed God and resumed the temple building project. Amen. <laughs> and we're going to pray. Our Father, we thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace. We thank you that the one who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. We pray with thanksgiving in his precious name. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention.